Well, good morning, Forefront. It's so good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in online. If you have your Bibles, let's grab those, and we'll open up to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Well, let me ask you, who in your life motivates you to become the best version of yourself? Who, who do you look to in your life as an example? Somebody that encourages you, inspires you, that, that makes you want to be better, the best version that you can be. So I think all of us are, are motivated by examples at one way or another, in one way or another. We have examples that we look to that, that, that motivate us, that inspire us, that encourage us to, to, to go further and, and to take steps forward. When I was a kid, we used to look up to some of our favorite athletes. And if you were my age, you always looked, if you, especially if you played basketball, you wanted to be like Mike. Anybody else here want to be like Mike? You know, you're out there playing on your six-foot goal with your tongue hanging out of your mouth, trying to dunk, right? Like, right? Mike Jordan style. For me, growing up in Missouri, it was George Brett. George Brett was my guy. I couldn't even hit, I couldn't hit left-handed, but I wanted to, just because George batted left-handed. I wanted to do everything that George could do. Play third base, wear my hat the same way. Of course, pine tar was illegal in Little League, but still, I wanted to do it. See, for you, you we have examples Maybe for you, you, you love music. You love to, to sing, and you, you, you want to become the best singer you can be. And so you, you, know, you, you pick the best. You, you think of someone like Adele, and you try to model yourself after them. Or maybe you love to write. And so you, you, you are inspired by authors like Brene Brown, just the way they see the world, the way they can communicate truth and everything around them. And you say, these are examples of people I would like to strive to become. But let me ask you, who in your life personally is an example? Who, who do you look to personally, somebody you know that is an example to help you strive to become the best version of yourself, to help you to strive to become the person that God created you to be? See, the reality is that in life, God created the world to work in such a way where he gave us examples because examples inspire us. And they help us to take steps forward because it's powerful to have someone model what life can look like. But examples also can be negative too. Because I think... Examples can help us show us what not to do or how not to make that same mistake that somebody else has made. But I want to ask you the question this morning, do you realize that not just do you have an examples, examples in your life, but you are an example to somebody else? I remember almost 10 years ago, that day that Courtney and I brought home Emma. And we got Emma out, and we put her in her little car seat, and we got her in the back of that, that Nissan Altima, and we buckled her in real tight, and I even had the hospital uh, staff come out and make sure I had it hooked up right. You know, I'm just nervous, and I'm driving home, and I'm looking in that rearview mirror 10 or 12 times in that three- or four-mile drive, and I, I realized at that point in the drive home that this is getting real. Like, this is, it's official. I'm taking her home. I don't have nurses to help me and Courtney anymore. And in that moment, I realized that someday this little one's going to look up to me as an example. That someday I'm going to be their example, for better or for worse. And I have to ask myself the question, am I going to be a good example, a positive example, a motivating and inspiring example, or am I going to be an example of what not to do? And there's been a lot of times I've been the latter of that. But the reality is all of us, whether you have kids or not, no matter where you work, people are looking up to you. And people are either being inspired by you or they're saying what not to do. And so I think one of the questions I want us to ask this morning is, what kind of example are we setting for others? You know, the last couple of weeks we've been in the book of Titus in a series called Blueprints. 
And we've said over and over again that God has given us blueprints for life, that God has created the world to work in such a way where for us to experience the good life, the full life, the deep life, the abundant life, the rich life, it comes from following God's blueprints. And so the past few weeks we've talked about that God's blueprints for our life are for us to to be healthy and to be um, part of a a healthy church. And we've talked about the blueprints for healthy leaders. But today we're going to see that Paul is going to give us the blueprints to set a healthy example, to set an example worth following, and to set an example for other people to see that inspires them to seek to be the best version of themselves. And so for this morning, I've titled my message, Becoming the Example. So if you have your Bibles, let's look together in Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And we're going we're gonna to take the whole chapter down today. So we're going to move pretty quick, but um, we're going to take some time to really Look and see how Paul tells us that we can become the example by following God's blueprint. Look with me. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. And as you flip there, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, just the beautiful sunshine and this weather we've had. Just the, the changing of the seasons reminds us, Lord, that uh, oh, man, you are just, Lord, you're just so in control. And uh, what, what a grace, what a beautiful grace it is that here in the early part of November we can have 70 and 75 degree days. It's just so good. Father, we, we, uh, we are reminded, Lord, in, in the Psalms, the words of David, that the heavens declare your glory. And so, Lord, we thank you for putting this beauty around us that points us to you, that stirs our hearts for what you've created things to be beautiful and, and perfect and for us to strive towards the beauty you've placed around us. So, Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, that you give us the words of Titus today. And the challenge to, to ask the question, what kind of example are we setting? How do our lives match up with the, the example that, that you've laid before us, Lord? And help us to take that seriously today. Father, we, we know that there are people in each of our families that are going through difficult times and battling health and job challenges and relationship issues. And Lord, we know that you are in control, but we ask, Lord, that you just be in our midst, Lord, to guide us and direct us and and to help stir up our affections, to trust in you as we walk through a crazy season of life. So Father, open our eyes and our hearts today to see your word. And uh, Lord, help us to to keep our eyes on you. You, We ask, Lord, that you do a mighty work in our heart today. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Titus chapter 2, verse 1. If, if you were with us last week, we, we were talking about the, the blueprints for a healthy church. And, and Titus, Paul was writing to Titus. Titus was Paul's protege. He was a church planner. We said he was sort of a fixer. Paul would send Titus into these churches to solve a problem. And so Paul says, Titus, go to Crete, and I need you to set things in order because leadership has allowed culture to sneak into the church And false teachers were beginning to to sneak into the church as well. And they were taking people off focus. And we said last week that what you you give your attention to drives your devotion. And so when you focus on things outside of God's blueprint, it's going to then take your devotion offline. And that was what was happening in Crete. So Paul says, Titus, go set up great leaders, set up healthy leaders. Here's the blueprint for that. And then go set up a church that is founded on God's word. And so Paul's going to then tell Titus, hey, as we give the blueprint to God's people... Make sure that they are, verse 2, chapter 1, looking to God's word first. Notice what Paul says here. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says this. But as far as you, Titus, what you're teaching to these leaders and what these leaders are going to teach to the people, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, Paul's used this word a couple times, this word doctrine, and we've said that it means healthy teaching. 
doctrine is, is God's teaching, God's word. But there's also an, another uh, interesting aspect to this idea of sound doctrine. The, the NLT says it this way. The NLT says that as for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So there's this beautiful marriage between sound teaching and sound living, healthy teaching and healthy living. So Titus, go teach the churches how to, to live it out, how to live the way God wants you to live. Effectively, he's saying this, live in a way that lines up with God's word. So we're going to show you what that looks like, Titus, but live in a way that lines up with God's word. Like That is the foundation for being the people God has called us to be, and that's the blueprint that God calls us to live. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself before we, we dive in here this morning into the bulk of what Paul's going to tell us is what is influencing the way you live? Like what, what holds the most weight? If you had a pie, you guys remember the old pie chart? What percentage is culture? What percentage is the people around you? What percentage is, is what you think is the way you should be living? Like who really influences the way you live? It's an important question for us to ask because Paul's going to give us God's blueprint for how we should live. Now, now, one of the interesting things that I, I hope you've noticed so far in just the first chapter and a little bit in chapter two is that Paul loves lists. Any, anybody else here like lists? Anybody just like have a, the, the, the Todoist app on your phone with 50 things on it? Or how many of you are Post-it note people? Anybody got a Post-it note on their fridge or their computer and their car dashboard, right? It's just, hey, I got lists. I got lists where my lists are, right? I got lists and over lists. Paul's a list guy, and you'll notice it. He gives us a list of what a healthy church leader looks like. He gives us a list of what a healthy church looks like. And today, he's going to give us a list of what each of God's people should live like, what it looks like to actually live out the right teaching, the healthy teaching. So we're going to see that today. And I want to just pause and tell you that when you see a list in the Bible, take it serious. It's not just like Paul just got on a, on a, on a roll, right, and he just started spitting out things. I mean, he probably did, but God was inspiring that role because God cares so much about you and the way you live. See, there's this misconception out there that like, oh, if I'm right with God, then God doesn't care about how we live. But no, God cares about how we live. That's why he gives us this blueprint for how we live. So when he gives us a list, pay attention because he knows that it's so easy for us to get distracted, like we said last week. And he knows it's so easy for culture to infiltrate our lives and our church and take us off mission and off focus. And so he gives us these lists to really simplify what are the basic foundational things we should be seeking to do. Never going to do them perfectly, but what are those things we need to seek to do? And so Paul's going to give us this same list, this blueprint for a life. And before we dive into this list, because it's going to, he's going to talk to each of us, just so you know, nobody's going to walk out of here today not feeling like your toes hurt, okay? Just be prepared, because Paul's going to step on our toes. But before he does, I want you to think of this list that Paul is going to give you as a rule of life. See, John Mark Comer in his book, uh, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, talks about this idea of rule of life. And I want you to notice what he says about this. He says, a, a rule of life is a schedule and a set of practices and relational rhythms that help us to create space in our busy world for us to be with Jesus. See, notice the foundation, it, you know, to be with Jesus. The good life is the result of being with Jesus. And so he, it's a set of, of practices, relational rhythms for us to be, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did to live the, the, the full, to the full, John 10.10, 10, in his kingdom. 
and in alignment, alignment with our deepest passions and priorities. God wired you to want to live the full, deep, beautiful life, and that comes from following God's blueprint, which is focusing on being with Jesus. Notice what he says next. It's been said that we achieve inner peace when our schedule is aligned with our values. A rule of life is simply a tool to that end. Rather than a rigid, legalistic to-do list, it is a life-giving structure for freedom, growth, joy. Now, I'm assuming that in this room, every one of you want those three things. Freedom, growth, and joy. Comer says, based on God's word and his blueprint for our life, the way we get freedom, growth, and joy is by having a rule of life, following God's blueprints for our life. So, so think of this idea, these set of practices, this relational rhythm that we're going to see. And as we go through this list, I want you to ask, how does my life line up with these characteristics? You guys ready? You got it? All right, here we go. Look with me. Rome, or uh, sorry, Titus 2, verse 2. He's going to first talk to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and then employees. Okay, so here we go. We're going to all be a part of this today. Look at this. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, Self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, let's get rid of the elephant in the room here. Who does he mean when he says older men? Who is he talking to, you know, just the, the older gentlemen in the room? So there's a lot of debate over this. In the Roman world, it was typically referred to an older man was anybody over 50. So I know 50 is the new 40, right? Like 50 is young. 50 feels young. So don't be offended it's older men, right? Now, it's even been said, though, that in some Roman cultures, older men can be even be as young as 30. So, yeah, grown, ouch, right? Yeah, but just be honest, guys, we don't run nearly as fast as we used to or jump nearly as high as we used to, so we probably fall into that category. But I digress. This is what Paul has to say, not what Drew has to say. Notice he's saying that older men need to fall into these characteristics. And, and we're going to just hit them really quick, just really quick. But I want you to see the heart behind this, the overall focus on this. Look first, sober-minded. What, what does Paul mean? He means that holding, uh, actually means holding no wine. This is somebody who's not under the influence of, of outside factors, but somebody who's sober-minded, who's focused, who's temperate, who's seeking after Jesus and what he has for his life. And you can play that out however you want to play it. You can talk about being sober as far as alcohol. You can become sober as far as drugs or, or pills or, or maybe influences, too much entertainment, right? Just distraction, all of these things. But sober-minded, someone who is pursuing after Jesus, who's thinking clearly. Second, dignified. This is somebody worthy of respect. Third, self-controlled, somebody who has restraint, who has control over their mind, their mouths, who has control over their eyes, has control over their ears, who has control over their actions. He says, sound in faith, love, and patience. Now, when I say uh, faith, love, and patience, you guys would typically think that, you know, the older one gets, the more they probably grow in wisdom, and the wiser they get, the more patient they get. Now, I don't know if that's always true. It seems to me like Paul might be warning us that as we get older, we might get a little impatient. We might get a little less loving. And I know there's a lot of great memes out there of, of older guys like Walter Matthau and Don Lemon, grumpy old men that are telling you to get off their lawn. Now, I don't know if that's what Paul's getting at here, but he is saying that as we grow older, we need to get better at being patient. And patient doesn't mean I bite my tongue while I wait in, in traffic. 
Patience is the idea of endurance and perseverance, like a marathon runner. So older men, if you're in the room, Paul is saying that we need to grow in love and in patience and in faith. What about older women? Now, Paul's going to talk about older women next. Now, how old is the older woman in here? Well, I learned a long time ago, you don't ask a woman how old she is, right? Is that good wisdom? Teach that to your kids. My wife's perpetually 29, and my grandma, she's still 59. Just so you guys know, she looks great. She's great for 59. So I don't know how old Paul's talking about here. But here's what I do know. Paul's going to get very specific here as well. So older men grow in faith, love, and patience. Older women, look here, verse 3. Older women likewise, just like I said to the older men, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. So these, these things balance really well what, what Paul is saying here. So he's saying to the older women, you, you guys can put yourself in your own category. I'm not going to do that for you. Older women here, teach what is good. Be reverent in behavior. Notice these characteristics. Reverent in behavior is this idea that, that a woman's devoted to God. That, that, that they are the example to others of what it looks like to, to follow Jesus, to live and to act and, and how they speak. And this word not slanders, it's actually, it, it's the same word that's used for the devil. And so what it's saying is don't be an accuser with your words. Don't, don't be a, a gossip. Don't abuse others with your words. Now, is Paul saying that older men tend to be grumpy and that older women tend to be led to gossip? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's what Paul's saying, but I, you know, I'm going to let Paul's words speak for themselves, okay? I mean, this is not, this, again, this isn't Drew's words. These are Paul's words, okay? I think Paul's just saying, hey, guys, watch out, because these things can happen. Like, watch out, because as you get older, it's easy to get grumpy. Watch out, as you get older, it's easier to become more abusive with your words. Just be careful to find a nice rhythm and how you relate to others. Does that make sense, guys? So notice what he says next. He says, not addicted to wine. Remember, he told the older men to be sober-minded. Now he's saying to the women, don't be addicted to wine. Why does he talk to both groups about drinking? Well, in the Roman world, Roman culture, uh, drunkenness was a huge deal. They didn't have a whole lot to do, right? They couldn't stream Tiger King on Netflix in those days, right? Like, they had to find something to do. And in those days, they had a lot of time on their hands, and alcohol wasn't very potent. It wasn't like going to one of these craft breweries we have today. I mean, you had to drink all night in the first century, and they did. And so Roman culture was just flooded with drunkenness. And Paul's saying, church, you need to be different than culture. You need to have a rhythm, a relational rhythm. You need to have a set, a rule of life, a set of standards in the way you live that are different than culture because you need to set the example for others to see. Notice lastly what he says to the older women. He says, this is really interesting. He says, teach what is good. Teach what is, is good. And, and the Greek word here means be both the example and the instructor. So it's not just, just coach, just teach, just say words, but it's, it, it's to, to live it out, to, to show it. It's really what Paul's saying to the men, older men and the older women. He's saying this, that we show people the good life by living the good life. That if you want to show somebody the good life, do you need to teach them sound doctrine? You do, but you need to show it to them. The best way to live the good life or to teach somebody the good life is to actually live the good life. And, and here's what I, I want you guys to think for a second. Is there somebody in your life right now? Is there somebody you're related to? It's a friend. It's a coworker that you're a little disappointed in the way they live. 
and, and you've, you've talked to them about these things and you've shared things with them before and you're just disappointed with the choices they're making or you're disappointed with their lifestyle. Could it be that the reason you're disappointed with them and they're not living the way that you know they can is because we haven't shown them what it looks like? See, we get really good at being preachy, don't we? We get really good at standing on a soapbox sometimes and telling somebody what they need to do. But are we showing them what it looks like to actually do it? Are we teaching them by showing them what it should look like? Show them the good life by living the good life. So Paul says that to older men and older women. Look, be an example to people around you. Show them the good life by living the good life. And then Paul does something that's really funny. He's really careful here. Notice the next verse, verse 4. Notice, he doesn't just go to start telling the young women what to do. He tells the older women to tell the young women what to do. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty wise, isn't it? It's like Paul telling Titus, hey, Titus, you're a young guy. You're probably going to get in trouble when you start telling the young women what to do. So tell the older women to show and teach the younger women what to do. I don't know. I thought that was funny. You guys might not, but I thought it was pretty good. Paul, he's being pretty wise here. He's setting Titus up for success. And so he says, Titus, tell the older women to tell the younger women how to live. And notice what he says. Notice his first verse, verse 4. He says, train up the young women to love their husbands and their children. Now, you probably might say that and go, yeah, that seems like it should make sense. That seems like a common sense thing that the, the older women should teach the younger women. But I want you to know there's context around what, what Paul's saying here. Paul is addressing something that was rampant, again, in the Roman world that we need to be aware of that's going to be a little different than maybe what we take away from our understanding as we read this chapter. In the Roman world at that time, there was a huge problem of infidelity. Roman men would get married for children. And that was about as far as the relationship went. So the, the, the wife would be the, uh, the, the mom, and then that Roman man would go do whatever he wanted to do. He would, he would sneak away, he'd have affairs, he would have, maybe there would be servants in the home or, or whatever. That, that Roman man just did whatever he wanted to do. And so Paul addresses this all throughout his writings. So he's talking about Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, S sacrifice yourself for your wives. He's saying, guys, you got to stop this you got to stop running around. But then he also comes back around and says to the ladies, I need you guys to pay attention. Because in the first century, there was something happening called the new Roman woman. And so women in the first century, younger women, moms, would, were, were so upset that their husbands lived out this culture that they began stepping out of the home. And they began to say, well, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. If you're going to live this way, I'm going to live this way. And Affairs were rampant, and just everything was just really messy. And so Paul said, hey, guys, listen, guys, you got to get yourself under control. And, and older women tell the younger women to love their husbands and their children, meaning don't go run around. Stay in. Stay in the relationship. Stay in the marriage. Focus on what's good. Set the example for other moms and other wives to see that when we follow Jesus, Jesus calls us to something better than brokenness that comes from chasing outside relationships. And so anytime Paul is talking to uh, husbands and wives, he's really going to get into this, and he's going to focus on this. I want you to be able to read into the context of what's going on in that culture. And, and, and typically, when, when we come across these verses where Paul's like, hey, husbands, sacrifice your wives, wives, submit to your husbands, we kind of get a little uncomfortable with that, don't we? We're like, well, because that's been taken out of context. Oh, well, I'm supposed to submit to my, my husband? No, no. 
That, 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 that seems wrong, but what Paul is saying is that if a husband sacrifices himself for his wife, like Jesus gave himself over for the church, meaning the husband puts aside all of these things he wants to do and does what is best for his wife and his kids, gives himself over to the, his family, just like Jesus did for us. And the wife responds with love, honor, and respect. That's this idea of submission, not being told what to do, responding to the leadership of the husband with love, honor, and respect. And the husband sacrificing himself like Jesus, the church, and it, it, the picture of the church responding in love to Jesus is the picture of the wife responding in love, honor, and respect to the husband. It creates the perfect circle of a relationship. And that relationship shows the world what it looks like to, to follow Jesus. It's the picture of the beauty of marriage, what marriage was meant to be. Sacrifice, love, honor, respect, and care. And so when Paul talks about submitting yourself to your husbands in Titus 2, this is what he's talking about. Submitting yourself because your husband's going to sacrifice himself. Now you're going to respond with love, honor, and respect. Notice what he says next, verse 5. That's exactly what he's talking about in verse 5. He says, teach, older women, teach the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul isn't saying that, that, that women shouldn't work outside the home. Paul is just saying, stay in the home. Stay in your marriage. Fight for what is good. Give yourself over to the relationship that God created you to live in. It's the responsibility of the husband and the wife to both work towards that. Notice why. Notice the end of that verse. So that what won't be reviled? The word of God. He's saying that through the way you live your life, people will watch and they will see and they will see the, what you're doing and the way that your, your marriage or your relationships are, are focused and they will not revile the word of God means they have nothing to, bad to say about God's word. They have nothing bad to say about these Christians because, wow, these guys are living right and they're living differently and they're setting a good example. And so when people look at us, and, and, and if you're not married or, or you're in a different season of life, how, how, are you, how are your friendships? How are the relationships at work? But if you are married, how is your marriage? And when people look at you, do, do they look at you and say, wow, what an example. That's beautiful. And they know that's what that relationship should be. This is what we should be striving for. And, and one of the beautiful things is, is many historians will look at the early church and they'll say, why did Christianity just explode? Why did Christianity grow like a wildfire in Roman culture in the first few centuries? And many biblical scholars, or, or many historians, not, not Christians, many historians will credit the fact that people in Roman culture looked and they saw these Christian marriages. And they said, wow, following Jesus does change the way you live because they were changing culture. Now you had couples that were married and loved each other and stayed together and talked about it. And people in the Roman culture were going, hold on, wait. The husband's not running around. The wife's not running around. But they, they love each other. My goodness, this following Jesus thing actually works. This following Jesus thing actually changes my life. And the same goes for us, guys. In our culture, people look at the church and go, well, it looks just like it does over here in culture. Does following Jesus really change the way you live? And it's because we've allowed culture to infiltrate the way we live. But what if, what if the way we lived was different? What if the way we lived showed the world that God's word was true and that Jesus did change your heart? What would that do? It would change the world. It would change everything. So Paul's saying, guys, we got to learn to set the example so others can see 
what God's word can really do and that Jesus really does change things. So Paul says, older men, older women, older women teach the younger women, but then look, I want you to see what he says to the younger men. So young guys in the room, he's speaking to you right here. Notice what he says. He gets super specific. He gives you a long list, doesn't he? No, he gives you one thing. He says, likewise, urge the young fellas to be self-controlled. Like, hey, older men, here's the five or six. Older women, here's the five or six. Younger women, here's what you guys are focused on. Young guys, self-controlled. Like, just try to keep it together until you guys can get old enough to figure out and mature. Now, for any of you guys that have boys in the room, I'm praying for you guys. I just want you to know I'm praying for you guys. I've been, you know, blessed with three daughters, right? And if you have daughters, you know it's a competition to see who can get louder, Right? But, and they do get a little whiny at times, but they're never swinging from the chandeliers. Like, like, honestly, right? Like, they're never just punching each other in the face for no reason. I got friends with boys, and it's just like, oh, my gosh. How is your house not on fire every single day, right? So, and, and I don't know about you guys, but me and the girls, we love to watch YouTube videos of mountain bike and skateboard fails because they are great, by the way. But it's never a girl. It's never a young girl on the mountain bike that's trying to do the double 360 backwards flip. It's always a guy, and then he ends up with a broken leg. So I think Paul is right by saying, young guys, self-controlled. Hold yourself together just a little while longer, and then when you're 30, you'll figure it out, and life will be a breeze, right? Right, guys? We, we figured it out at 30? No. 50? I don't know. 70? We can talk later. But I'm just saying, Paul knows there's something going on here with the young guys, and he's saying, guys, get yourself under control. And I want you to see Paul's trying to set relational rhythms for us, right? He's trying to set this rule of life, this standard of practices. These are things we should focus on. And then he says this in verse 7. He brings it all home for all of us. He's saying, show yourself in respects to be a model of good works. What does that mean? Set the example. Be an example for others to follow. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. He's saying, tie this as you teach Teach God's word so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say. So Paul's saying, Titus, teach them to live a life worthy of looking up to. Teach these people to, to live a life that is worthy of looking up to. Teach others to become the example because we are the people that, is gonna, that are going to show the world what Jesus looks like. And we are the people that are going to show the world who Jesus is. But to do that, we need to set rhythms, and we need to get back to the basics. I, I talked a little bit last week about John Wooden. Many of you know John Wooden. He led UCLA to 10 national championships in the course of over 12 years. And, and he was an incredible coach, one of the greatest coaches of all times. Now, you would think, in a team that's been so successful, that in those days, players would play all four years. That nobody would go pro after a freshman or, junior or sophomore season. They would all stay four years. You would think with such a veteran team, John Wooden would start every year off by picking up where they left off and just getting better, but he didn't. On the first day of practice every year, do you know what John Wooden taught his team? He didn't teach them how to, to make layups. He didn't teach them how to shoot free throws or pass. He taught them how to tie their shoes. They spent a whole practice learning to tie their shoes. Why? Because he said, if you can't do the basics right, you'll never be great. And if you can't learn the small things, you'll never be successful in the bigger things. And I think if you look at this list of what Paul's telling us, 
of, of telling Titus, what's the blueprint for God's life for us? What's the blueprint for God? I'm sorry, what's the blueprint for, for the good life for us? At the foundation, it comes down to this idea of self-control and godliness and, and having the, the, the right focus, the right devotion. Those are the basic things. And if we can set a rhythm in our life, if we can have values and, and relational rhythms that focus on those basic things, then God can use that to do amazing things. And God can use that to help that blueprint grow us to build up the house, the good life, the life God created us to live. So here's what I want you to ask you. Based on your section, you can self-select which category you want to go in. Based on your, your list, how are you doing? What do our relationships look like? What example are we setting? And where do we need to put some work in? Where do we need to put in some effort? Because just imagine if the world looked at you and the world looked at this church and the world looked at Christians and said, wow, look at the way these Christians live. Look at their relationships. Look at the way they treat their wives and their husbands. Look at the way they treat their kids. Look at the way they are raising up the next generation. Look at the way they work. Notice what Paul says next in verse 9. Paul says this. He says in verse 9, too, bondservants are to be submissive to their masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. He's talking to bondservants in those days, much of, uh, of servantry. And, and when you see the term slave was, was this idea of indentured servitude or people that, that, that worked in homes as people. And a lot of times people would put themselves in that place because they owed debts or they couldn't make money to take care of their families. Very different than what we think of in, with antebellum slavery in the U.S. And so really the, the closest tie-in for us is, is employee-boss relationship. So he's saying to us in 21st century context, hey, at work, how are you working? At work, how are you honoring those in authority above you? At work, are you being honest with your time? Are you being honest with the way you spend the company's money? Colossians 3 says it this way. Colossians 3 um, says that whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men. So how, how are you dealing with your work situation? Because one of the realities is one of the best ways to show Jesus to the world in your marriage, yes. But another great way to show Jesus to the world is in the workplace. How are you working? See, I think that's what saying, Paul's saying here. is the goal is not to get, convince people that you're good. The goal isn't to convince the people around you that you're good. The goal is to convince the people around you that God is good. It's all about we're showing Jesus. We're trying to reflect Jesus, and we are being the example that Jesus has called us to be. But let's be honest. This isn't easy. I don't know about you, but when you look at your list, those aren't easy things to do. When you look at this list, as basic as it is, you realize this is difficult these are hard things. So how are we going to do this? Because I don't know about you, the, the harder I try to do something sometimes, it's like Paul says in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. Why is that? And it's because we live in a broken world that's dominated by sin. But you know what? There is hope that it's not on you, and it's not on me. Who's it on? It's on God. Notice what Paul says. This is beautiful. I love this. Paul says this. He says that God's grace is the best teacher. That you want to learn to do this, you want to learn to follow this list and be the person God's calling you to be so you can be the example to somebody else, your best teacher is the grace of God. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says for this, for God, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul said it's God's grace. God sent Jesus here for us to save us, to forgive us of our sins, to set us on the path for life, to show us the blueprint for God's life. And God's grace continually is teaching us through experience and through God's word and through the people in our lives what it looks like to become God's people. Because God has set us apart to be people for his own possession, to be God's chosen people so that we can reflect the grace of Jesus to the world. And you may be here today, you may be tuning in online, and there may be a time in your life when you've never put your faith in Jesus. God has set, he, he has set in motion the good life, and it can be yours. But to experience that, we have to put Jesus first. And we have to admit that that we fall short, that we are sinners, that we need to be saved by the grace of Jesus. And God's promise is that when we put our faith in Jesus, that God forgives us of all of our sins, past, present, and future, and sets us on the path to the abundant life, to the good life. But to truly experience it, God's grace is going to teach us along the way. We've got to be paying attention. and We've got to be leaning in to what God is teaching us. So Paul says, God's grace is the best teacher. And he wants to create people that are eager for good works, that are zealous for good works, that see that God has called us to be an example, to do good. It's like what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says that by grace we're saved, right? Through faith, not of ourselves, because it's a gift of God. And God does it because he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in this idea of good works. God has created us in Jesus to to show Jesus, to to be Jesus to someone who has never met him, to do good works. And so God's grace is the best teacher. So let me ask you, I want to go back to that very first question that we asked. Who in your life is, is setting an example for you? Who is inspiring you to to want to become the person God has created you to be? And who in your life is propelling you, creating a desire in you to be eager to do good? Because that's what God has created you for. This week I was listening to a podcast on a biography of Steve Jobs. I think many of you know Steve Jobs' story. And Steve Jobs was the CEO of Apple and led one of the most successful organizations over the course of a decade and a half, 15 years, and created items that have changed the way we live, the iPad, the iPhone, the way we use computers. But I don't know if you knew this about Steve Jobs, but he started the company Apple in his parents' garage in 1976 but was fired in 1985 from Apple. He would come back in 1997 to, to resume his, his experience with Apple and over those 15 years led Apple to unparalleled heights. But what, so what happened? In 1985, he was fired from Apple because he was a terrible boss. He was a terrible leader. He was a genius. But he talked down to people. He set a bad example. He was horrible to work for. And so the company basically said, we have to let you go because you can't be a part of what we're doing. You're such a bad example. And from 1985 to 1997, what happened that changed him to become the kind of leader that would revolutionize an industry and would 
change the scope of how you and I live here in 2021. What was it? Well, there's a lot of things. If you listen to his biographies or read any of them, you know that there was a lot of factors. He had unparalleled focus. He, he, he had a, just a, the ability to see the future in a way that most people didn't. But he learned through his negative experiences. When he got fired from Apple, he bought a company called Pixar and a company called Next and just about drove them both to bankruptcy. It was through those experiences that he learned that he needed to surround himself with good people and he needed good examples. So he became friends with CEO of Oracle. He became Larry Ellison. He became friends with Bill Gates and CEO of Microsoft. He surrounded himself by good people. He learned the lessons he needed to learn. And by 2011, Apple was, was one of the most profitable companies in the world. And it's changed the way that we work and the way that we communicate and the way we listen to music. And it's an example that when you surround yourself by the right people, it propels you to become a better version of yourself. And so I think the challenge for us as God's people is to think, how can I be the person God has called me to be? How do I grow to become the person that follows God's blueprint, to have a, a rule for my life that allows me to get back to the basics so that I could be the, the man, the dad, the father that God has created me to be? And it comes with letting God's grace be my teacher. And it comes with surrounding myself with friends and family who are going to propel me to become the best version of myself so that I can be eager and zealous for good works. I love what John Wesley says. If you know John Wesley, he's the father of what became the Methodist Church. And his brother Charles Wesley wrote all of our favorite hymns. This is what John said. He, sa he says this, this is a beautiful quote. He says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. The reality is, friends, we can't unless we surround ourselves with good examples. And then we can become those good examples for others and let God's grace be the best teacher as we pursue to become the people God has called us to be. So this week, here's my challenge for you. I want you to, to think to yourself, how can I surround myself with someone who's going to become an example to me, who, who can help train me to become one day an example to somebody else? And maybe you have somebody in your life like that now. Maybe you have a, a, a coworker or, or a friend or somebody here in this church, somebody in your life group. They say, I'm, I'm going to call them up. We're going to have coffee. And we're going to start having coffee once a month. Or, or, or maybe you've got a mentor. You just need to call and say, hey, I, I need your help. And if you don't have one, you don't have a mentor, you don't have a, a, a friend, we've got uh, plenty of people in this church that w would love to walk with you to help set an example for you so we can pursue good works together and so we can allow God to use us to show Jesus to the world. See, God doesn't just want us to, to, to be good so others think we're good. God wants us to pursue good so that others can see that God is good. Would you pray with me?